Okay, if you have a Bible with you today, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. After a three-week break from the Gospel of John, we're, uh, we're back in it. Um, back on uh, the last, not the last Sunday, the last Sunday before Christmas, on December 20th, we did a rather light-hearted message on the 12 days of Christmas, so just something fun to lead us into Christmas. And Then on the last Sunday of the year, I shared some prophetic insights for 2016, um, if you haven't heard that, there was some stuff the Lord gave me uh, for our church. Uh, there was some stuff he spoke to me about the island and then some stuff beyond there. And so you may find it um, useful going forward into 2016 um, to listen to some of that. Last week, uh, to launch the new year, uh, I shared a message uh, titled The Anatomy of Trust. And as part of it, we, we watched this awesome, amazing video by... Uh, Benet Brown, and she just kind of broke down what trust is, and um, just we've, we've watched some of her videos before, and I've enjoyed all of them. I think this one was excellent. So anyway, after a three-week three, three week break, we're back into John's Gospel, and today we're going to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So you might be asking, you've been here for a while, why are we, why are we working our way through the Gospel of John? Well, back in November of 2013, I was praying, and and my conversation with the Lord was basically something like this. Lord, these are your people. What do you want me to give to them? What, would you, what do you want me to share with them? I was, I was um, really focused, really intentional about coming before him. Not want, I could just come up with what I think is the best to offer you, but I really wanted to know what he had for you. And, um, and you know, an angel didn't appear and there wasn't a golden fax that floated down from heaven. It was just the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and it really sounded like him. It's the way he speaks to me. And I heard him say the Gospel of John. And I got to tell you, that was kind of unusual for me. Most of the time, throughout my ministry experience, I like to speak topical series. I'll find a topic and I'll mine it until I can squeeze nothing else out of that topic. It had been a very long time since I had preached through a whole book of the Bible, let, let alone one that's, uh, you know, as, as long as the Gospel of John. You want me to preach through a whole book? How about, like, Ephesians? We could get through that in short order. <clears throat> but God, why are we doing this? I really feel like God said to do it. <clears throat> and so, um, so, I thought, you know, hey, this sounds like God, and I'm going to use Scripture every week anyway. Can you? can't really beat the Gospel of John. How can you get better than John's Gospel, right? Amen. And uh, we're going to use Scripture every week anyway, so I figure, hey, this will be good. And so it's been an amazing account of Christ's life, and here we are more than two years later. We did take a few breaks in between, and uh, we're about to start chapter 18, and today we'll look at verse 1. So this is verse 1 of John 18, and it says, <clears throat> When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And so, Lord, I thank you for this journey we've been on with the, the Gospel of John, and I thank you, Lord, for the process you've been taking us through uh, this whole time. I pray, Lord, you give me grace today to communicate your word to your people in such a way that's life-giving to them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we find Jesus in the garden. 
And things change after this. It's another one of those pivot points. As we began chapter 13, uh, there was a real shift from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry. Chapters uh, 13 up until this point here in 18, it's just Jesus is with his, he's alone with his disciples. And, and the time is really focused there. <clears throat> and since that time, we've seen that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Um, he very graciously dealt with Judas and Peter, Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. He established a new covenant between God and humanity, not based upon the law, but a relational covenant based upon love and grace. He repeatedly offered words of comfort to his closest friends. He had told them, <clears throat> he was preparing them, hey, I'm going away. And they completely misunderstood it. They had no framework for understanding that Jesus was about to go to the cross to pay the debt of sin for all of humanity for all time. All they heard was he was going away, and they basically kind of freaked out. And so repeatedly since chapter 13, he's comforting his friends, saying, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be good. And he gave them instruction as well, profound instruction, like the words of John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus told them in this alone time with his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. You realize that if we could live those words, it would change the world. It changed, it changed everything. And I think most of the mess that the worldwide church has is because somehow we've forgotten the power and the truth of these instructions. But these are the instructions Jesus has given his friends in this a long time. And then in chapter 17, we have the prayer of Jesus. The whole chapter is his prayer. And he prays for his disciples, and, and he prays for us. He prays for you and for me. So in chapter 18, in the beginning of it, when it says, when he had finished praying, it's the prayers of chapter 17 that it's referring to. And so before I go forward into what happened in the garden, just a quick reminder what did Jesus pray for us? What did he pray for you and for me? This is what it says in John 17, verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, guys. We're the ones. We sit here today because we believe in Jesus because of the message that the, the apostles, Jesus' disciples that were with him this whole time, the message that that, that they spread across the world. So what the people Jesus is praying for, you. He prayed this for you. He prayed this for me. My prayer is not for them alone, not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus, Jesus prays that we would be one. I think there's two part, there's two sides to that coin. That we would be one with one another, and that us as a people would be one with God. So that we would be one with one another. So that people from Canada would be one with people from the United States. Oh. People from the United States would be one with people 
in Iraq and Iran. That the people born on the right side of the tracks would be one with the people born on the wrong side of the tracks. That the people who are rich would be one with the people who are poor. That the people who are educated would be one with the people who are uneducated. That we would be one. That Protestants would be one with Catholics and Pentecostals and Charismatics. This is powerful prayer. He prayed that we would be one. But that's not even the most amazing thing. He prayed, Jesus prayed that we would be one with the Father. Just, and, and to what degree? Just like Jesus and the Father were one with each other. That's, a, that's profound. That's amazing. It's mind-blowing. So listen to me. The ultimate purpose of all things, the, mo- the ultimate purpose of everything, Creation, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming is this, that we may be one. That there would exist this deep, intimate, abiding relationship, this connection between God and people. I know I've said this before, but please listen to me. It's all about relationship. It's all about our relationship with a God who loves us lavishly and extravagantly, and that because he's loved us, we're able to love. We love because he first loved us. That as we experience his love for us, as we experience his mercy and his grace for us, for all the stupid things we do, that we have love and mercy and grace for the other people in our lives and all the stupid things they do. That we would be one. Okay. Let's get back to the garden. So on our journey together through John, sometimes I've covered chunks of verses, sometimes just a small handful of verses, and occasionally we do a singular verse. Today, we're going to do a singular verse. We're going to cover just verse 1. I'll read that again to you. Chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples I went into it. So I got a little map for you here this morning so you could have a sense of what that looks like. That's, that's a, a rough map of Jerusalem, right? And so the yellow arrow is where the upper room was. And they crossed town through the Kidron Valley, which is the red arrow. And uh, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the white arrow. That's when they left the up, upper room, they took a little walk together, all of them. And this is, they went from point A to, to point B, and in the process they, they passed through the Kidron Valley. This is what it tells us in um, chapter 18, verse 1. And as we'll see, there's other things on that map, but we'll see in the next few chapters that Jesus goes to Annas' house and Caiaphas and makes a stop over by Herod and eventually to Calvary. Um, there's a picture of, I found of what the present-day Garden of Gethsemane looks like. These are very, very old olive trees. Uh, some research I found said it was much as 3,000 years old, some of these trees. And then uh, I thought it would be nice to show you an artist rendering of what the garden looked like, and maybe one of the better ones I know is from the movie The Passion of the Christ. And that's a picture of what Jesus may have looked like in the garden of that night. So 
John's Gospel just says that they went to a garden. The other accounts let us know that it's Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane is Greek, and it literally means oil press. Gethsemane is a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. There were these are olive trees. <laughs> this is where they would take the olives from the trees on the Mount of Olives, and they would press them uh, in Gethsemane and create olive oil. It's most famous as the place where Jesus prayed and his disciples slept the night before his crucifixion. Now, John's Gospel jumps right into Jesus' arrest at verse 2. And it really doesn't tell the story of what happened at Gethsemane. Um, I thought it's such a powerful picture. It's such a significant aspect of the, the entirety of the Gospel narrative that I didn't want us to miss it. And so the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And for today's purposes, I want to use Luke's account. And later on, I'll make a reference to Matthew. But in Luke, it's chapter 2, verses 39 to 46. And let's just look at those a verse at a time. Verse 39 says, this is from Luke 22. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, Olives, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus had a usual place. He liked going to the Mount of Olives. This was his regular place. Scripture reveals that, that this is a place that Jesus often frequented. Do you have places that you go often? Nadine and I have moved around a lot over the years, but nearly everywhere we've lived, I've had a place that I would go to, an outdoor place, a public place where I could go and just have conversations with God. I would love, I would thoroughly enjoy to find some place that was um, beautiful in nature. So even when we lived in New York City, there was a park, oddly enough, that very few people knew of in Queens. And I'd go on these long walks in this park, and I'd have these wonderful conversations with the Lord. And what I really liked about it, <clears throat> it was isolated, so I could talk out loud to him without other people around me thinking I was some crazy person, you know? In Washington, it was by the Columbia River. There was this long walking trail by the river. And God and I would just have conversations. And I would talk to him like, like I talked to you. I wonder if this is what it was like in the garden here for Jesus. He went to his usual place. This is a place he'd go to often and have conversations with God. So, like I said, Scripture reveals that this is a place Jesus often frequented. Um, every time Jesus would visit Lazarus and, and his sisters Mary and Martha... It was on the Mount of Olives. Their village, Bethany, was on the eastern slope. The Bible records Jesus visiting the Mount of Olives three times in this last week of his earthly life. The first visit was to deliver what some theologians or Bible commentators would refer to as the Olivet Discourse. You can find it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And in it, Jesus is responding to his disciples' question when they said to him, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled. That's from Mark 13, 4. They were asking Jesus about end-time stuff and he was answering their questions. This was on the Mount of Olives, final week of his life. The second visit in the final week of his earthly life is uh, what we refer to as a triumphal entry uh, as, uh, into Jerusalem. According to Luke 19, Jesus, uh, this is where his disciples found the donkey that Jesus rode into the city. It's where the people laid their cloaks 
on the road and sang Hosanna uh, to him as he, as he rode by. And it's where Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept over the city. This is from the Mount of Olives. This is from the usual place he'd go to. The third visit is what we're looking at now. The third visit in, in this final week of his life, what we nowadays refer to as Holy Week. It was, it was the night he was betrayed. The evening which began with the Last Supper in that upper room in Jerusalem and has now ended, ending in the Garden of Gethsemane here at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Now additionally, concerning the Mount of Olives, Jesus' final post-resurrection appearance is also on the Mount of Olives. In Acts chapter 1, Scripture tells us that it was from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascends into heaven. And immediately after doing that, after ascending, two angels appear to the disciples on the Mount of Olives and say in verse 11, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So he goes from the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Now, according to the prophet Zechariah, Jesus will return not only in the same way. He went up, he'll come down. But indeed, in the same place. Zechariah 14.4 prophesies that on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west, forming a great valley. With half of the mountain moving north, and the other half moving south. I don't know. I've never been there. I'm thinking the Mount of Olives might be a pretty interesting place to go visit someday. It seems like a hot spot in Jesus' day. I wonder if it's still a spiritual hot spot. So this was a favorite place of Jesus. This was a place he would visit often. If you, if you look into the Old Testament, it's, it's the very location where David wept after defeat. And as we already know, it's the place where Jesus was experienced betrayal and rejection. But it'll also be the place where he returns in triumph. What an amazing picture of divine justice over injustice. God knows. God remembers. He doesn't forget. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't go into hiding. Matter of fact, he did just the opposite of going into hiding. He knew what was coming, right? He, he confronted Judas about it. He knew it was coming, and he didn't go into stealth mode. Instead, he went to the usual place. He went to the expected place. He went to the place where it would be easy for Judas and the soldiers to find him. Jesus wasn't running or hiding from his destiny. Right? I mean, the picture of the map I put up, and you don't have to go back to it, they could have gone lots of places, right? I mean, it looked like they had to take quite a walk to get from the upper room to go to the garden. And somehow Judas knew that Jesus would go back to the usual place. So Jesus wasn't hiding. Verse 40, on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is what he tells his disciples. So what is this temptation? Well, the text doesn't really specify. It doesn't lay out specifically what temptation Jesus is, uh, is referring to. It, 
Theoretically, it could be temptation in general. Most of the commentators I looked and looked at and read, they seem to suggest that the temptation Jesus is saying not to fall into is cowardice, right? That, that they wouldn't go and run and hide with what was about to come. I think that's as illogical, that's as good a guess as any. Verse 41, it says he, he withdrew, Jesus, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Stone's throw. Commentator David Guzik takes note that, that this, this phrase, this term, must be an eyewitness account. This is what he, he wrote in his commentary on verse 41. He said, here is the passionate account of an eyewitness who no doubt related this incident to Luke. Only an eyewitness would remember a detail such as Jesus prayed about a stone's throw away from his disciples. I think that's a pretty interesting observation. Now, it says here Jesus knelt and prayed. Realize that in the Hebrew culture, it was common to stand when you prayed, not to sit and not to kneel. So I wonder if the kneeling here was something common to Jesus in his relationship with the Father, that this is how they related to one another, or, or more likely, was it an expression of the, the passionate intensity of the moment? This is, this, is a, this is a pretty critical moment. And so Jesus prays, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Interesting words. Interesting words. Interesting prayer. I've, over the years, as a Christian and a pastor, I've seen these words misapplied <laughs> often. Uh, they, they're misapplied when they're used for healing. Oh God, if it's your will, you know, heal Uncle Ed. That's not, this, is, this prayer that Jesus is praying to the Father has nothing to do with healing. Not, that's not if it's your will. Jesus has a cup he needs to drink. And this is why he prays that prayer. So why does Jesus pray this prayer? Is, he, is Jesus being forced to do something he doesn't want to do? Is there division because of it among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit? Are they, is there some discord among them? Is that why Jesus is praying this prayer? Is there a wrestling match of, well, the Father wants this, but boy, I'd really like to find an alternative way to do it. Is Jesus getting cold feet? About three months before Nadine and I got married, I got cold feet. I did. I was 21. She was awesome. I was dumb as rocks. I got cold feet. We called it off for a weekend, right? God's mercy to me is her father was out of town, and he never found out about it, right? Because if he had, he never would let me marry you, right? No way. I can understand what it's like to get cold feet. But I think the answer to all those questions is no. Jesus wasn't being forced. There was no division. I don't think he got cold feet. I think the plan was clear from the beginning. I think the Trinity had planned this before God ever uttered the words, let there be light. This was the plan. Matter of fact, Jesus himself tells us that no one takes his life from him. It's not like the Father is strong-arming him into the cross when he didn't want to do it. In John 10, verse 17 and 18, 
Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So obviously, Jesus isn't being uh, coerced or manipulated or forced to do something he doesn't want to do. In every, in every way, Jesus and the Father are one. They're in full agreement. And this, right here, this moment, this is the, the execution of the plan. This is the, the critical moment has arrived. Shortly, Jesus will take the cancer of sin into his body and then drink the only antidote for that sickness. And it's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the antidote for sin. The wrath, the wrath of God is the chemotherapy for the cancer of sin. Now, make no mistake, this is not the wrath of God against Jesus. And it's certainly not the wrath of God against you or me. We're the objects of his divine affection. But rather, the wrath of God is against the disease of sin that has been killing us and keeping us separated from the Father. That's what the chemotherapy is. I've taken chemotherapy too many times. And the chemotherapy wasn't Tom's enemy. It was the cancer's enemy. It fought intensely, passionately, feverishly to eradicate the thing that was killing me. It was there in my defense. The wrath of God is never, ever against you. It's against that which is killing you, and it's against that which keeps you separated from God. That distinction is profoundly significant. So from that perspective, what Jesus is about to do, he's going to take the cancer of sin on his body and then drink the wrath of God as a chemotherapy to kill that sin. From that perspective, this prayer a little bit more understandable. Here we see Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And you know what? Maybe you've experienced this. I have. We can know the will of God. We can fully agree to do the will of God. We, I'm sorry, let me say it again. We can know the will of God. We can fully agree with the will of God and yet still struggle to do the will of God. That's what happened with, I got cold feet. Man, I knew she was the one. God told me she was the one. I've been asking her for years to marry me. It took a year for her to finally say yes. I knew this was the right thing to do. And when the moment came, I struggled. I think Jesus fully knows God's will. I think he's in full agreement with it. But the intensity of it, the magnitude of it, that we can't even begin to fathom, brings him to a place where he says, oh God, can this cup pass for me? Not my will, but yours be done. In the end, in the end of the sentence, Jesus yields to the Father's will. And I want you to know, we can too. Because he lives inside of us. Verse 43 tells us, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. So intense a moment in human history that angelic help is required. Matthew's account 
adds a little bit more insight into this moment. Chapter 26, beginning of verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell to his face to the ground and he prayed. So, when you are sorrowful and troubled, when you are overwhelmed to the point of death, and I know that some of you have experienced very similar things because of the circumstances in your life. You've come to me. You've told me about it. We've prayed together. When you're in those moments, you need your friends to pray with you. You very well may need angelic help to appear. And it's at those moments when we fall on our face and we pray. Verse 44 says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, though I've heard of cases where people were in such extreme stress that their sweat was somehow mixed with bits of blood, I'm not certain that this text is actually saying huge droplets of blood actually fell from Jesus onto the ground. I think rather um, that he was sweating so profusely because of this unimaginable burden that it was like, the word like is in there, right? It was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I'm a big fat guy. Let me do a little work. You're going to see sweat fall off my face onto the ground. I don't think, especially being bald, there's nothing to stop it, man. It just rolls <laughs> off the top. Glasses get all wet. It's terrible. I don't think, you know, Jesus was a big fat bald guy like me. But I think it's a pretty intense moment. And he might have been sweating profusely as a result. Um, Jesus, look, he's about to take the sin of all humanity for all time into his own body. If there were actual blood being sweat there, you know, probably reasonable. You know, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but the word like is in the text. Just a couple more verses and then we'll close. Verse 45 and 46 of Luke 22. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up. And pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The very next thing that happens after this is Jesus gets arrested. And the disciples scatter. You know what? It probably would have been better had they stayed awake and prayed. So, what's our takeaway from this? How does this apply to you and me tomorrow morning when we get up and we begin our work week? But we know that Jesus did for us what we would never, could never do for ourselves. And in that process, he became the ultimate example of both trust in God and faith. And so I ask you today, is there something in your life? Is there something that you and God are in agreement about? Something that you indeed are convinced is his will for you? but you still struggle with it? 
Do you still struggle to do it? Do you find yourself at this moment of life in your own garden? Crying out to God, Oh Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Have you too asked for this cup to pass? Maybe. Just maybe today is a day where like Jesus, you can yield your will to the Father's will and pray like Jesus prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. So why don't we have the worship team come back up here and lead us through a final song. And and I want to pray for you guys. If you need prayer for anything today, if there's anything you need prayer with, come forward. We, we would love to pray for you. But especially if you find yourself in your own version of the God of Gethsemane, and you, you find yourself wrestling with the will of God, the purpose of God for your life, and at earlier times you were like, oh, yeah, God, this is you. This is absolutely it. I want to do it. And now you wrestle you know, Lord, could you take this cup from me? If that's you, if you find yourself in that place, then I especially want you to come forward so we can pray for you. But if you need anything today, come on down as these guys live in the final song.